Dan, it's fantastic speaking with you. And thanks for your time. Where are you talking to us from? Talking to you from Mexico City. You you are trying to bring two countries together, especially through food and culture. And in doing so, you built a business empire that has a bunch of restaurants and that did $9 million in a year in revenue. So can you walk us through how it all started? It's a long story, but let me see if I can sum it up. I came to Mexico in 2009. I was working for Apple as the uh, education marketing manager for Latin America to promote Apple um, in, in classrooms all over the continent. Um, well, in, in, in Central South America and Mexico. And, uh, you know, I, I worked in a school in Texas in the early 2000s. And when I was there, I uh, really fell in love with barbecue. Uh, my next door neighbor was making barbecue because she was selling it to the teachers at the school in a very small town, rural town called Roma, Texas, right on a border where Texas uh, turns and goes north. And uh, so I really liked barbecue. I went back to New York, do my master's at Columbia, and I fell in love with dinosaur barbecue up on the Upper West Side. Uh, loved being there. And so I had a passion for cooking and for meat. I worked in restaurants all my life growing up to put myself through school. So um, in 2012, 2013, sorry, I was uh, sitting on the side of a mountain with a friend of mine who worked with me at Apple. And I was discussing this and talking about this. And I think both of us were ready for radical changes in our lives. And so, you know, I asked them, like, what are you doing? Let's explore this barbecue thing. So we, we flew to Texas. We went to all the barbecue restaurants there and tried it. And uh, when we were talking to the pit masters, uh, surprisingly, all of them were Mexican. So we spoke Spanish and we told them that we were opening a place in Mexico City. And I'm sure... If uh, all the owners of the barbecue restaurants in Texas knew about this, they'd probably not give us access. But the the you know because we were paisanos, we were brothers. The 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 pitmasters shared some of their ideas. Uh, we went onto YouTube. We learned. Uh, basically, I bought a twenty seven foot trailer, an Airstream in Edinburgh, Texas, and drove it down to Mexico City. We parked in a lot. I was the cashier. My uh, partner was the guy cutting the meat and uh, the security guard who was going to lose his job because we were there. Uh, we felt bad for him. So we said, all right, well, why don't you start cooking for us? And he had no idea how to cook. And, and just, you know, the three of us opened the restaurant and, you know, for thank, thank goodness, it was, it was incredibly successful. Wow. Um, so I'm really fascinated with your story because you worked in like different industries from like politics to education and eventually made it to the restaurant industry. What advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur who want to make a career shift into an industry that they know nothing about? Well, I think it's all about, you know, think about this as an educator. I had to motivate uh, young people to believe in me and believe in my vision for what they wanted to do in the classroom, which was very helpful in making business, right? I have, you know, a staff of 105 people that I need to motivate and believe in me to work hard at the restaurant. So there's very similar uh, things there. And also when you're a teacher, you have to grow empathetic to your people and to understand where they come from to do that. Um, had a master's degree at Columbia, which, you know, even though I was studying uh, public administration and government, I always call it business school with a heart. I had to focus on um, really, you know, understanding like how to create businesses and operations. I took operations management and decision modeling, uh, all those classes. 
uh, marketing at Apple was probably one of the most amazing experiences, but not just the marketing position, but working at the Apple store, you know, I think my restaurant looks like an Apple store, like some of the incredible considerations. And, you know, when I worked at the Apple store, I was still studying at Columbia. I was making, you know, $13 an hour, I think, you know, working in, uh, definitely felt at times that I was way overqualified for what I was doing, but I needed to pay my bills. But that was the most incredible education that I had when I was 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, I worked at McDonald's and I'm still using those McDonald's experiences in, in doing things here at the restaurant. Well, my point about this is that I think a lot of people are like, wow, you just like left your job and just picked it up and made something. No, I, I you know, 15 years of learning and growing and, you know, finding core skills and understanding how the best do it. You know, like I'm working with government right now to make sure that the local government feels good about what we're doing. So there's my political experience. So I had a lot of different experiences in different industries that all go into informing being a CEO of a company, because it's not just one vertical. Like you have to learn everything to do everything. So I want to give people the ability, like, yeah, you know, you can be an entrepreneur, but also you need to be an apprentice first. And I think in the generations that have come up, like we've kind of lost that idea because we think that we need to motivate people by saying like, you know, you can do anything and people can just go on YouTube and learn something. And then they think they're an expert in that field. I don't agree with that. So my advice to new entrepreneurs is make sure you learn, you be an apprentice, you do all the things before you decide to be an entrepreneur. Like if I was a CFO or a COO of a major company before I did this, I'd be so much better off today because the learning curve that I have of being a CEO is like, I don't know how to figure this out. And it takes a lot longer for me to figure it out than if I had that experience. Can you, can you name a few issues that you are facing as a CEO that you wish you had figured it out earlier? Yeah. I mean, when and where to invest. Uh, how to motivate my team and to structure their goals. You know, how do I build goal setting so I know that they have, you know, X amount of goals and that they are, have the ability to reach those goals and that I have the right people in the right positions that have the right mindset to be able to get to those goals. I think, I think that's, that's one major issue right now. As we grow, how fast do you grow? Do you grow quickly and build many and then make a lot of money and then sell the company? Or do you do a long-term steady, slow growth to make the quality of your product uh, is the best one. If you bring in new investment, what kind of investment do you need? You know, uh, how, do, how to structure a finance team and to make sure that your finance team is having the right strategies and your tax strategies and uh, how to build an inventory system. And to make sure your inventory system is, is uh, tight because, you know, there's a lot of sticky hands in this industry. And, you know, you, you, most of your business is buying inventory, preparing it, and then selling it. How do you make sure that the inventory doesn't get wasted or it doesn't get stolen? How to make sure security and keep your place secure? How to compensate your people fairly and in the correct way to make sure that they stay happy? And how to prevent any risks? Because in a restaurant, there's risks every day. I mean, we're selling alcohol all the time, you know, and when people drink, people are on, on a drug because alcohol is the most dangerous drug. And when somebody's consuming alcohol, your risks skyrocket, you know, how to, how to keep your place safe from, uh, from bad people outside, you know, in Mexico, unfortunately, the rule of law is not as, you know, uh, 
it's a bit more riskier in Mexico than it is in, in, you know, more developed countries that have a judicial system that if something bad happens, that people feel a little worried because they might be jailed or go through the process. And if you don't have as much of that here in Mexico, you have to make other considerations to protect yourself and its risks. So there's a thousand things that I think about every day. And um, anybody wants to open a restaurant, like you have to be an adrenaline junkie to really enjoy it. Like I read somewhere that when you first started, you started, you weren't even making like $30 a day. And like, even the dogs were not eating the food that you guys were making. And now you are making like $9 million a year. How did you go from $30 to 9 million? Like what were the things that you learned and um, how did you make your food so much better? Right. You know, I, I've learned that there are, and, and, you know, childhood traumas and uh, people's ways of feeling are very important because from day one, I had an incredible passion to feel the customer and to feel the customer experience very deeply. So when I'm on the floor and I'm looking around, I can detect and understand how my customers are feeling. And so I was at the restaurant on the floor with a shirt working for almost four years. And I sacrificed my personal life. I was not able to do things on the weekend. Um, it was hard work, but I learned and knew how to develop uh, a very deep love for our business because of that. And I think that, you know, that was very crucial for me. And now that I'm not on the floor as much, I try to go on as much as possible. I was just bartending yesterday. We had the 49ers fan club in Mexico come in. They had like 250 people there. We didn't have enough bartenders. So I jumped behind the bar and I was bartending for a while. And there I was really learning about a lot of things about how customers were feeling, what they were upset about. I went around the floor and asked people their comments but being there and understanding and feeling the customer experience that your biggest marketing asset is the client. And when you can inspire the client, they will go out and they will tell 10 friends. I went to this amazing place. It's called Pinche Gringo, which they love the name and they think it's funny. Uh, you know, they have great meat. There's a trailer in the middle of the place. Like it's very unique. It's very different. I've never done something like that before. And to inspire a customer to talk about me, that means their experience needs to be an eight, nine, or 10, not a four, not a five, not a six, but really like a top of mind thing that makes them feel like really memorable uh, so that they're going to be my vocal to other people. And that's powerful marketing. So when you first started, was there a hesitancy for them to try the food at your restaurant? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you would, the word brisket, is an American, is an English word. There's no translation in Spanish because no one eats the cow chest. No one eats it, right? The brisket is used in Mexico for soups because it's the leftover meat because it's impossible to cook. So when I'm selling something called brisket on a menu, people have no idea. And, you know, Mexicans are used to things with tortillas. They want their aguacate, their avocados. They want sauces and they want to like put lemon like uh, limes all over their meat because traditionally, you know, like in the taco places, the meat's not so quality, good quality and we don't know how long it's been. So you put sauce and uh, limes on it to make it taste better. But if I'm smoking my meat for 14 hours, I don't want my customers to do that. So I've taken that away. I don't have those things. And it's been really, you know, definitely a change. But, you know, if you make something that's good and delicious, it doesn't matter. You like it. 
you know, and, and, and uh, that's, that's kind of the message. Uh, I have a, I have a, there's a Korean restaurant nearby my first restaurant. And so during our core training programs, I would always take my team to the Korean restaurant because I wanted to simulate for them how it would feel to be in a place where you have no idea what the food is and to be able to have empathy and an understanding of that with every customer. So my team was trained to explain to people and let them give it a shot. And if it was good, then they would come back. And that's how we built our business. Who is your biggest clientele? Are they locals, the American expats or, you know, tourists? I would say we have more percentage of American expats coming to our restaurant than other restaurants, but you have a huge city. So American expats make up a very, very tiny percentage of the city. I am very proud that because of the essence of barbecue is that it's for everybody and everybody shares tables and everybody that my clientele is a plethora of the entire city. And that does not happen in Mexico ever. It's very, uh, I guess, castish in a way that where the people from upper class go to upper class restaurants and upper class neighborhoods, people of lower class go to lower class, you know, like it's very castish in that way. Um, but we've been able to open our doors to everybody, keep our prices pretty affordable um, to, uh, to open the doors and have everybody come in, they share tables. So you have people from one part of the city sitting next to someone from another part of the city and a table, and it's a little uncomfortable at first, but I think people realize that it's okay to be able to share a table with somebody. I also read somewhere like how COVID affected your business as well. And from my understanding, you didn't let go of anyone, but like, I think your staff decided to take like half of their salary and they're like still working. So how was like COVID for you? And like, how did you manage that? Yeah. I mean, COVID was a crazy time uh, for all of us. My, my father passed away the first couple of days of, of in, in mid-March and I got back to Mexico and the business went down 85%. So we were all pressured and I kind of just woke up one morning and said, well, you know, you, you, you've lost some things, but you're just going to have to like, keep it going. So you make sure you don't lose others. And we did a lot of team building for many, many years. We climbed mountains, we had, you know, retreats by lakes and, you know, and, and some of my restaurant friends thought maybe we were wasting our money, but this is the time in the biggest uh, crisis where everybody came together and stood by each other. And we knew that if I was going to help my team, my team was going to help this survive. And it was a trust bond that was activated very quickly uh, to make that happen. And, uh, I didn't, I, I didn't know about this. Like the team came, came to with a proposal to, you know, cut half their salary to be able to continue. And that was very temporary. It was only a couple of months. And as soon as they were able to figure out, well, all of us together to figure out how to raise sales and to keep things going, we brought the salary back to normal right away. I think it was like, we, they cut their salaries in April and by August we were paying hundred percent again. Wow. Was mm -hmm. Mexico like opening uh, sooner than the United States? Yeah, we I mean, president decided that we could not stop the economy because more people would suffer with a stopped economy because we rely heavily on tourism, uh, on services. So, you know, his decision, whether it was right or wrong, you know, is for, I guess, I guess that's the biggest question, you know, about pandemic for everybody for many more years of like, what was the right way? I don't think anybody, people have their, their thoughts, but nobody's right or wrong. But by July, we were open again. We closed 
from April, May, June of 2020 and December, half of December, January. And then like by the 2nd of February, we were allowed to open our restaurant again. Uh, so it was a very short time compared to some countries that was two years or, or more than that. Um, you know, we had a reduced capacity, uh, a lot of different things with masks or whatever. Um, and we took care of our people. Um, we didn't have a COVID case for a year um, affecting any of our staff. So we were pretty lucky with that. Um, yeah, we got through it. Yeah. It's the same thing in India as well. They opened very, very early. It's also because they, these developing countries, they don't have the luxury of, of giving stimulus money and, you know, reviving the, the economy in that way. So they had to open. We got nothing. I mean, I didn't get any help from the government at all. Right. I had to pay my taxes as normal. You know, we just had to keep going and we were fending for ourselves, which, you know, again, there's no right or wrong. It would be interesting to know, like, you know, that we had to diversify or die and the weak businesses died and the strong businesses continued. And then from the weak businesses that died, new businesses came up after pandemic. It's just like kind of the natural, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more left in my politics, but pandemic made me realize some things about, you know, kind of letting, letting the, the, the economy do what it's going to do. How did you diversify your business during pandemic? So we divided the team into six teams that uh, we kept to the teams and the restaurants that were operating. We had two, two restaurants. Um, and I sent four of the teams out to closets. Like we found closets in different parts of the city where we moved to kitchen equipment and we used Uber Eats and Rappi, which is the, uh, the Uber Eats service here in Latin America. Um, and we just delivered out to customers in their homes. We had heat maps to know where our customers were living. So we knew where we were going to put different restaurants um and just did delivery and the good thing is that our product was deliverable because it's kind of like uh like a butcher you know you can order pounds of meat keep it in your refrigerator and then use it for the rest of the week if you have any leftovers so we that's how we did that and um and uh we were eight percent of delivery before pandemic uh and at the height of the pandemic we were running to 70 to 75 percent of our total business uh in delivery so we knew how to, you know, convert from that. Um, we did that. And now delivery is about 30% of our business. So now it's a new vertical for us that we didn't have before pandemic. You talk a lot about like team and like culture. Like, did you, before you even started, was that a priority for you? Or like, how did you come up with this idea? Like the importance of like team building and having a good culture? Well, I was very lucky enough to work for companies that had wonderful teams and culture. You know, I was a Teach for America core member and Teach for America. Very importantly, it was the, one of the most successful, uh, you know, organizations and, you know, being in a school and being a teacher, you work in a team. And then, you know, I learned a lot of team ethics at, at Apple. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I've understood through a wonderful American education that, together collectively we're better than anybody individually and you know we know that in other cultures and other countries like we can make commentary about that us isn't great about everything but that's one thing that we are excellent at is understanding the idea of a collaborative effort of, of multiple people and so i was able to bring those learnings here into my team which in mexico we don't think about that as much like the family is very important and supporting the family but 
outside of the family, it's anybody's game. And so I've been spending a long time and many years to have to change that culture. I'm not successful all the time, um, but I definitely know that the culture is still permeates here. And so I'm better off than some of other restaurants uh, in some of the struggles that they have. Mm. Speaking of teams, so you, you mentioned initially the company had three people, two founders and one security guy. And now you have a little over 105 people, I believe. So what was the hardest thing that you would say that you had to face in, in scaling the company and then, you know, scaling the team as well? How do you build and grow by keeping the same quality of your product to keep the consistency in what you do and also keep the team motivated to feel like they are part of something very special because when it's 20 people, like everybody's a part of it, everybody can have influence. Everybody's, you know, committed to building something and making it grow. But as you get bigger then the hierarchies come, then the people uh, down, you know, like lose influence and what or lose contact and uh you know sometimes upper management will talk about listening to their people as because it's the right thing to say and then that's what you do but maybe it's not practiced and so trying to keep those values intact uh, like you know today i know the name of everybody in my team i have 105 people i know it's easy to know 100 names you know you guys know more than 100 names of course but as you grow it's harder and harder that they feel that contact with the owner because you know in mexico the the hacienda system where you have a family collective and then you have the people working in the hacienda uh, working for the the owners right and it becomes like a us versus them you know the owners are trying to like keep the people from stealing and doing bad things and the people are trying to take what's theirs and not be taking advantage of with cheap labor and there's a conflict that goes on all the time there. And those things don't change. You know, to change cultural like norms and thoughts and structures, uh, it, it doesn't happen. So 500 years later, we're, we're still struggling with this Hacienda system. And I'm trying to convince my team and buy them into the idea that I'm not here to steal from you. I'm not here to rip you off. I'm not here to make a thousand times more money than you. I'm trying for us together to grow this because they are the ones that are working with my customers. They are the ones cooking the meat. They are the ones designing new recipes. So if I am ripping them off and treating them badly, it's going against my best practices, you know? And then I, I, I'm with my restaurant colleagues, you know, oh, they, they don't know how to work hard. They don't show up to work. I can't control turnover. They're all stealing from me all the time. And I'm like, well, how much do you pay them? How, what do you do? Like, do they know you? Do they, are they, did you buy them into your vision for the company? Do you involve them in your decision-making process? And if that's no, then why not? They don't care about you. And I think, I think that's, those are important concepts that I've been trying to, to change. But remember, changing culture is a never-ending thing and it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who wants to move to another country and start a business? No, no, no. <laughs> Well, you know, you think, you think that you are culturally aware. You think that you can connect with anybody because you're pretty liberal, like you're understanding you grew up with people of different cultures in your school. You've traveled a while, but you have no idea how deeply your American ethnocentrism is inside you and lives in you. 
And, uh, and there's a reckoning there because you realize over time that the way we do things in the United States is not necessarily the best way. It's just different. And yes, we are a country that has a lot of efficiencies. We figured a lot of things out. We do things, you know, in a way that doesn't waste time. It's not personal. It's very business oriented, but other people in the world aren't like that. And actually what I've learned is that other countries are much happier because there's a personal part of the relationship. And for me, like when I don't see that happen, when I see too much of that happening, it gets me frustrated because I'm American and I'm like, guys, this is business. And they're like, no, it's life. So there's going to be personal in the business too. And I've been 13 years really struggling to change myself and to change my practices and to have more empathy and understanding for others that think very differently about the relationship between life and business. And it's hard. I'm still sometimes hitting my head on the wall because I think differently. And so there's some definite, uh, there's definitely some, some, some difficulties with that. On the other hand, you know, in a country that's developing, you have, much more opportunity to be entrepreneurial. Um, there's less government regulation, like, you know, there's less inspections. I don't have to have a sink that's 10 inches tall that has these handles and it's in this color and having somebody coming to my business every day, looking at that sink is working, which is a good thing for, for customers, you know, but for me, it's very stressful for business owners in the US. I don't have that here. You can bring new ideas, you can bring new innovation. And if you're trying to surprise and delight your customers, by something that's new, it's much easier doing it in a place that's developing than a place that has it all already. Like maybe my product wouldn't have been as sensational and unique in the US as it is in Mexico, because also I took best practices from places that I've been to in the US. So Americans are used to or expect the type of things that I deliver, where for Mexicans, it's like, wow, this is cool. You can pay with an iPad. You, uh, you know, order efficiently, you have draft beer, like you have a, a, a soda station that gives you free refills. Like that's amazing. But in the U S it's not amazing. So there's, there's some pros and cons to things. Um, and you know, I live in a beautiful country with beautiful soul and great music and great colors and great celebrations and a different attitude to life. And so I'm very lucky, uh, to be in such a colorful and, and a place that is so deeply rich with, with, with culture. I'm sure you guys can relate to that as well now. So, uh, you, you have a partner. How do you both manage disagreements? Partnerships are hard. Relationships are hard, guys. In any type of, nothing, no matter what, it's hard. And... Um, how do we manage the agreements? You know, we have to listen to each other. We have to go to a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy. Wait, business partners? Business partners too, yeah. I mean, especially because I have somebody that thinks very differently from a different world, different culture, different family, different background, different education level, different experiences. And so we think very differently about almost everything. But we trust each other and we trust all the time that everything we're working on in life is always for the good of all of us. It's for the good of the business. And it's not just good for each of us individually. And I think whenever we have a conflict, we always revert back to that. And then we renew our, 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 you know, we're also very close friends. We're also brothers, you know, like, like spiritual brothers. And so 
but in the business it's 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 really hard um but we we keep managing it and maintaining it as we go along yeah it's something new that i learned today that there are therapists for business partners as well i mean any relationship it's you have two different people with two different ideas about how they want to live and you have to make incredible compromises to do something you would normally not do you know and it's just trying to find the understanding and also division of labor okay well you got this area and i have this area i think that's been very successful for partners where they're able to like separate the business a little bit where okay you're going to make the decisions here and i'll make the decisions here i want to ask one more question it's like you have like managed to sell like a combination of i think 12 to 15 metric tons of meat a month what are your strategies for managing like supply chain and inventory in like high volume setting and how did you like manage that initially well they there's a saying and i don't know if it's official or not but 80% of all businesses um restaurants don't have inventory systems like it's a very very hard thing to develop um it's just been years and years of trial and error and i think that the biggest weakness of my business is that i lacked a great system to be able to control and manage that i can be a lot wealthier today if i was able to do that it's a constant struggle we're still trying to learn it and get it because there's just such a mass amount of meat that's coming through and i and i've been i've been to sonora uh driving for hours to go from processing plant to processing plant understanding their practices their hygienic thing, traits building relationships with people so they can they can trust us and understand that we pay on time i have to pay all my bills on time to build these relationships um and to get better deals and to get better products but it's hard it's hard but you know uh, let me tell you something i don't want to conclude with like i've been uh, you know debbie downer and a lot of the things about people in restaurants but i will say that the biggest reward of a restaurant tour is that you're an artist you're not a you're not a business person and the great thing about artists is that you create an art and then people come and they see your art and they look at your art and they try your art and when they like your art they validate your art they say it's amazing and when i know that there are thousands of people in this city that their favorite place to go is pinche gringo barbecue it's so beautiful and so enriching i know so many people in the city i have a vast network from all different places because i i'm at the restaurant meeting everybody all the time and that's really beautiful and that's really powerful um to have so that's the good part of being an artist but the hard part of being an artist is that you know you need to be uh, an anxiety and an adrenaline junkie because my art is happening when other people are resting from their 9 to 5 jobs and all weekend long things are going on and problems are having to fires being put out you know like it's it's a it's a grind and the bigger you get the more problems you have every restaurant you open it's it's one more problem to to think about so but but I, at the end of the day it's really rewarding to be a restaurant owner thanks for being honest cuz i we don't like think about all of these things when we go to a restaurant so Yeah, you know, customers are hard. Really, really hard. Like I've I've read you know, you put your heart and soul into something and you're not perfect and then customers will rip you a new one. You know, like customers can be really, really harsh and really mean and just say things that have have big impact. Because I read my reviews every day and when I read a a bad review, I take it hard. I take it personally because it's someone who's criticizing my art and sometimes it's like 
you know, someone like someone will tell me like, you know, your, your chicken sandwich is terrible and they'll write it on the review and you're like, well, I don't sell a chicken sandwich. So I don't know what you're talking about, you know, like, but, but I, but, but if you don't take your customer, uh, your customer review uh, seriously and you don't listen to them, then you're not going to have a business anymore. Oh, this is wonderful. Thanks for giving us your insights. It was amazing talking to you. Yeah, before we end, so if, if people want to know more about Pincho Gringo, where can they find find you? There's a number of things. We have our, uh, of course, social media, Pincho Gringo Barbecue. You can go to Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I don't go on TikTok. I don't know. You know. Everybody loves TikTok, but I think we have a TikTok channel. Um, you can go to our website, pgbbq.com. MX, uh, you can reach out to me, uh, Pinche Gringo Dan, D-A-N. That's my uh, Instagram handle. You can send me an email, dan at pgbbq.mx. So there's uh, a number of ways uh, to reach out. Thanks, Dan. Awesome. Thank you, Dan.